welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 134. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now we do have another Q&A episode lined up for you. So we're going to jump straight into this first question. It says, should you consume a different fat source at each meal or keep it the same? So I would interpret this uh, the same as any other macronutrient. So carbohydrates, protein, should you consume a different source of them at each meal? And you don't have to, but it's probably a good idea to have some sort of diversity for each macronutrient source uh, because different sources of macronutrients will have different micronutrient profiles as well. What do you think? Yeah, I think that variety is the spice of life and absolutely, I think that it's a really good idea to change up your meals so that one, you don't just suffer from flavor fatigue, but so that you can remain well nourished too. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're eating four to five times per day, there's probably a few good reasons why you'd probably want to have a different source of fatty acids coming in from Mm. each one of those meals. Same with a different source of protein, different source of carbohydrate, different source of fruit or vegetable, whatever it may be. Mm. Yeah. What, what I'll often see in, in people when I do dietary recalls is that they will mainly consume or mainly obtain most of their dietary fat intake purely through incidental sources and a lot of those incidental sources ends up being just from their protein, which to be honest, probably isn't the best because we know that like the fat, dietary fat in protein is mainly saturated. So ideally you want to be getting in some plant sources of fat as well. So nut butters, nuts, chia seeds, flax seeds, all that kind of stuff. Extra virgin olive oil is great as well. Avocado, the list goes on. Yeah, so that you can you know satisfy your fatty acid requirements and ensure that you're getting sources from monounsaturated, polyunsaturated, and saturated sources. So Mm. perhaps across the day, what that might look like is at breakfast time, maybe you have some oats with some chia seeds in them. And yes, lo and behold, oats are actually a pretty fatty grain. Mm. (laughs) They're one of the highest fat grains, I believe. Is there any grain that's actually higher in fat? They aren't fat. They have fat. (laughs) They aren't fat. They (laughs) have fat. (laughs) You heard it here first, oats. We're not trying to discriminate you by no means. But is there any grain that has more fat than oats? Hmm. There might be some grain out there, which is a bit of a different culture, which we're not as familiar with maybe, but Mm. definitely in, in Western culture, not that. The only thing I can think of that's similarly equivalent, like I know that soy is obviously a type of pulse, so soy is not a grain, but the soybean is actually quite high in fat. And that's why when you actually have like tofu or tempeh, it's decently high in fat. It's like when you consume tofu, it's almost got as much fat as it does protein. It, not a one-to-one ratio, of course, but like it is pretty high up there for sure. Mm, higher than what people expect, yeah. Yeah, but again, going back to our point, so if you were to have a diversity of fats across the day coming from mono, poly, and uh, saturated sources, maybe at breakfast time you might want to have something like some oats with some chia seeds, or you might want to have some oats with some sort of nut butter on top, or some oats with some eggs on the side, and then Maybe at lunchtime, you're having some sort of salad with some olive oil or some olives in there, maybe some feta cheese or putting some pumpkin seeds in there, some avocado, maybe at some sort of snack. Again, you're having some sort of nut or seed 
And then at dinner time, maybe that's coming from a animal source like some chicken skin or some fat off a steak or again some sort of other thing that you would add into a salad or drizzling olive oil on top of some vegetables or if you are consuming like tofu or tempeh similar to what you said like you're going to get a lot of trace sources of fats from that meal mm. yeah definitely i i have quite a few different fat sources and i just like it's easy to incorporate it tastes good and like just choose an appropriate fat source for what you're having like mm -hmm. for example if you're having a salad you wouldn't i'm sure some people put peanut butter on a salad but <laughs> it's not very conventional so try and have something that you're going to enjoy with that meal mm -hmm. so like at breakfast i have dark chocolate i have some peanut butter at post-workout i usually have another type of nut butter like cashew at the moment uh, my third meal i usually have some avocado and some olive oil and my fourth meal I have an egg I have some hummus and yeah so I have quite a decent diversity there yeah me too when I think about it my breakfast I usually have like some cheese on my omelet and then on top of my protein cake I might have some dark chocolate and some cashews at lunchtime I like to have avocado in the afternoon I like to make a bowl of oats with some chia seeds and some cacao powder and then at dinner time I actually get a decent amount of fat from just fish oil pills consumed at night because that's when you and I both supplement with our omega-3s and then also a little bit of dietary fat in our kangaroo as well mm. yeah so good mix throughout the day but like you alluded to at the beginning that can definitely be applied to any macronutrient and we really encourage that so that you have nutrient variety during your day so it can be quite easy to actually fall into the trap of consuming just the same grain throughout the entire day, even if it's coming from a different source, if that makes sense. So wheat and rice are definitely two pretty common ones for this, for sure. So for example, at breakfast time, you could be having some bread mm -hmm. and then post-workout you could be having some cream of wheat at lunchtime you could be having some pasta at dinner time you could be having some couscous that's all coming from wheat sources mm. the exact same for rice yeah so like rice bubbles at breakfast cream of rice and then third meal could be some white rice and then rice noodles at dinner so yeah or it's very easy to snacking on that. rice cakes yeah yeah so definitely mix it up so you've got more variety in throughout the day and the recommendation is to have at least 30 different types of different plants in your weekly intake so mm. you don't have to do it in a day but across a week try to get 30 different types of plants going through you to uh, really try to satisfy your micronutrient requirements mm. awesome cool well this next question says could you discuss our ideal body fat ranges for both bikini and physique competitors and I think we're gonna broaden this to probably everyone to be honest yeah I just think people put too much of an emphasis on what's my body fat percentage like mm. who cares it's really just like a stab in the dark like yeah god I I really just go off ultimately how people look and how people feel yeah who really knows what mm. your actual body fat percentage is yeah that's basically the answer I was gonna say and there's two ways to interpret this as well like ideal body fat ranges for being competitive on stage or just like in general like off season and in prep or just to feel good like i'm not quite sure what the question asker is asking but i completely agree that like 
And this is often the answer that I give my clients when they say, oh, should I get a DEXA scan to track my progress? Or should I, I want to see what my body fat is. Like, should I get a DEXA scan and stuff? And I often just say no, because like one, if you save a bit of money if you're, if you're motivated by that. And two, like it really is just a number. Mm. Like if you wanted to, you can skew that number on the DEXA scan so easily. Just drink a bottle of water. And, <laughs> and add and sprinkle some salt in that water. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. And it really is just a number, as I said. And often people will dictate their emotions by what that number says. Mm. And which just isn't very conducive. Like how you feel and how you, like not even, depends what the goal is, but obviously with this podcast being bodybuilding related, how you look is important. Yeah. So it would be silly not to uh, have, give that some value, but how you feel at that body fat and how you look are probably the two key variables really. Yeah. And I think in terms of actually tracking body composition changes over time, I think the most reliable method is going to be taking skin fold measurements and make sure that it's taken by the same anthropometrist using the same tool over time so that and in the exact same site and actually tracking that across your own body and actually seeing, okay, how are these skin folds changing across time as I'm manipulating my body composition and I'm changing my scale weight. So skin folds are awesome and so are girth measurements too coincided with scale weight coincided with progress photos mm. coincided with how much food are you eating as well uh, i just think all of these other metrics in terms of dexter scans yeah it's interesting and both you and i have both had dexter scans before but dexter scans they are the gold standard for testing bone mineral density they're certainly number one and so if you are think that you're at risk of osteoporosis or osteopenia, or you just want to see where your bone mineral density sits in terms of the population average, full support of that, especially women in particular who have contraception and it might actually influence their estrogen levels. It's actually recommended that every few years you have a DEXA scan so you can ensure that your bone mineral density is still adequate. Plus that's also going to tie into your diet as well to ensure that, okay, hey, uh, these past few years, I've been a little bit slack on my dairy and my calcium intake. Might want to get a DEXA scan to see where you're sitting in terms of bone mineral density. But bone mineral density, it's obviously influenced by a number of different things, but the top two would be your calcium intake and also your resistance training and the frequency of that too. Vitamin D as well. And vitamin D. So yeah, quite a few different factors. And of course, hormones like estrogen. Hey guys, just a reminder that we offer coaching services, which you can find on our website by searching The Bodybuilding Dietitians on Google or via the show notes below. We coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal. Okay, that's number one for Dexter scans. But yeah, like you alluded to before, you can drastically manipulate what your body composition is going to spit out on a Dexter scan because a Dexter scan, it tries to differentiate between muscle, bone, and fat. But the way that it mainly differentiates between muscle and fat and bone is by fluid compartments in the body. So if you were to drink like two liters of saline fluid and you had to hold your bladder and you got onto a DEXA scan, you would probably come up that you probably have like an extra two kilograms of lean mass on you, which mm. we know that's just fluid. Yeah. Yeah. So it can certainly be skewed and it can unfortunately be quite demotivating for some individuals who undergo a dieting phase and they try to do everything right. 
they undergo resistance training, they've kept their protein intake high, they've gotten good quality sleep, and looking at their progress photos and their training performance, you can be pretty confident, like, yeah, you've pretty much just lost body fat. Like you, I would not say that you've lost any muscle mass at all, but then they hop on a Dexter skin, maybe they don't have full glycogen stores and it spits out at them, hey, you've lost five kilograms of lean mass. It's like, well, what? Like, mm. <laughs> this dieting phase wasn't very successful. Then it's like, no, 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 no. You didn't actually lose five kilograms of lean tissue. So yeah, I, I don't know. Dexter scans, in body scans are even worse with the bioelectrical impedance. Mm. Like some people get those. And it's tough as a coach as well because you'll work with someone for let's say three months and then they will have had a, a BIA, uh, which is a body impedance analysis so mm -hmm. like the in-body scan and they'll have that before they start with you and then after three months they'll have another one and because potentially they've manipulated some variables uh before each scan and they might have a different machine a different tester a different interpretation of the results they'll get it and then all their values will have changed for the worse <laughs> so it reflects really badly on you as a coach because like their body weight might have gone down they might have gained fat mass lost muscle mass <laughs> so it's like a worst case scenario so even from not that that is to be honest i don't think that's ever happened with either of us but yeah. i can see it being because only because i tell people not to get them mm. uh, but i can definitely see that happening i know or just the smallest little fluctuations with numbers it really gets to people because understandably like we do all get attached to certain numbers whether it be our scale weight, whether it be our step count, whether it be our macronutrient intake, whatever it may be, it is normal to kind of get hyped up around certain numbers, but like really looking at it so minutely, especially on a tool that just has so many different varying levels of inaccuracies being like, oh, last time my body fat percentage was 18.3, but now it's 18.8, you know, like I've gained body fat, but it's mm. you put their progress photos side by side, you show them their actual scale weight, you show them their training performance, you're like, no, you haven't. <laughs> trust, trust everything we're doing. Don't trust that random machine that's trying to send like <laughs> electrical currents through your body. <laughs> um, but anyway, getting back to body fat percentages, who the flippin', who knows, man? Who, mm. who really actually knows? So yeah, and if you're Ronnie Coleman, you know, that dude. <laughs> Ronnie Coleman was interviewed on the Joe Rogan podcast and he was like, yeah, I was negative body fat. <laughs> and Joe Rogan's like, I don't think that's possible. <laughs> like no denying Ronnie was lean, but everyone's got a little bit of body <laughs> yeah. fat. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, he wouldn't be alive. Oh gosh. Cool. Yeah. So this, this next question says, will you stay at maintenance calories at all during off season or push food all the way to prep? Mm, I think that it's important to go through like a few weeks of maintenance periods. Like you can't just consistently be in a surplus. And I feel like your body naturally tries to balance out for like two to four weeks on end sometimes, especially we've spoken about this quite a bit on our road to 2023 podcast, but you know, weight gain and weight loss, it's not always perfectly linear. Your scale weight's not always perfectly going to go up by 100 or 200 grams on average every single week. Sometimes your scale weight just decides to just take a big ass jump and you might jump up by 700, 900 grams in one week. And then you're like, okay, well, 
how about I just hover here, you know, for these next two to three weeks, let things balance out, and then I might manipulate my macronutrients again so it bumps up again. So I think that, I know personally with me, that's what kind of leads to me just hovering around that new maintenance because mm. my scale weight always, it does big jumps and then it hovers. It's kind of like, you're not just perfectly walking up or down a staircase, you know, like you might be like, I want to take three stairs at once and you, woo, <laughs> but then you're like, okay, I'm going to chill out here for a while. Yeah. I think this question also relates to another question we got. What should be the ratio of bulking versus cutting? Mm. And ultimately the goal should always be as a physique competitor to be in a surplus for as long as possible while maintaining a appropriate range of body fat. Mm -hmm. So there's multiple parts to that, but probably one of the main parts is like one starting that gaining phase at, a, at an appropriate body fat. So potentially in a leaner position and then not gaining a stupid amount of weight every week and therefore, and obviously resistance training and basically maximizing the amount of muscle to fat ratio that you mm -hmm. can achieve and prolonging that for as long as possible. So when I see people doing like six week bulks, like that just doesn't make any sense to me because like you're just not going to be able to grow a tangible, tangible amount of muscle in that very short time period. Mm. So, and we even spoke about that on our most recent podcast mm, because bulks, someone so. yeah, was asking like, you guys always talk about mini cuts. Why do you never talk about mini bulks? It's mm. like, well, there's not much to say. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, as Tierra said, I, I also got asked this on my personal Instagram, but we don't really do many uh, scheduled maintenance phases. Mm. It's really just uh, of occurrence mm. or auto-regulated maintenance where you might gain a bit of weight in a week and naturally you'll taper out for the coming weeks at maintenance or potentially you've hit a body weight and you don't necessarily need to, maybe you're going to be approaching a mini cut and you've going to be mini cutting from 90 kilos. You don't just hit 90 kilos for, okay, I've hit 90 kilos on Tuesday. I'm going to mini cut Wednesday. Mm. Like you might hold that for two or even three weeks uh, just to like secure that body weight, like maximize performance at that body weight and then do a mini cut, for yeah. example. Because otherwise, like you get into that just really weird cycle of just manipulating too many things and particularly just your energy intake on a day-to-day -day basis and then that just feeds into your scale weight fluctuating even more. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why we always look at things like weekly averages, fortnightly averages, rather than just like, oh, your scale weight bounced up by 300 grams from Tuesday, Wednesday, better cut back down on calories. So we come back down on Thursday. It's like, mm. no man, let it balance out, you know? Yeah. But to my opinion on maintenance phases, like actual scheduled, more chronic maintenance phases is. Like, what is the definition of maintenance? Mm. You're staying the same. You're not gaining or losing. And yeah. for people who are natural, like gaining muscle is not going to be very productive whatsoever at maintenance. Yeah. So if, if you're off season, and I'm not saying this to the question asker, I'm just saying it in general. Like if you're staying like the same weight for your off season, unless you either are taking drugs or you have incredible genetics, you're going to basically look the same next time you step yeah. on stage. Ultimately, guys, you have to remember that change requires change. And mm. if you are expecting drastic changes in your body composition, with that is going to come some changes on the scale. So mm. just be prepared for that. And it's perfectly fine. The only time that I would actually probably schedule maybe like a structured maintenance period or plan for that, maybe for like four to six weeks is if a new client comes on board and you have a look at their body composition and their healthy body weight for their height, 
However, they haven't necessarily followed like a structured resistance training program before. And it's not appropriate to just start losing weight. It's not necessarily appropriate to start gaining weight. You kind of just want like them to fall into a rhythm and just get into a good pattern of lifting in the gym, progressively eating a little bit more, and then naturally seeing how their body changes over time. So mm. in that specific scenario, you can take advantage of a few weeks of hovering around maintenance calories and just watching someone's body recomp yeah. for a lack of a better term. But like any, I wouldn't, anything beyond yeah. that, like then I think you, we're being more specific for physique competitors and mm. most wouldn't really fit into that criteria. Mm. But like I do, for example, have, or have had a client where like they've come to me, they, they're not in a good position to gain because their body fat is quite high. They're not in a good position to lose because their calories are so low. Mm. So you kind of have to maintain, maximize nutrition, maximize performance, try and build up calories as much as possible, and then probably get into a deficit from there. Yeah, it's always gonna be client dependent. Mm. Or for example, if someone is coming out of a comp prep and unfortunately they didn't have their first few weeks of a very successful reverse diet, let's say that they've gained a few kilograms falling on from their prep, and that is kind of... Well, a few kilograms too much, maybe. Yeah, like a, a few, few kilograms is very normal. Yeah, but what I mean is like, let's say you had a bikini competitor, she competed around 50 kilograms, you know, and then in the first month, she's already up to around 55, 58 kilograms or something like that. Like, you know, she, she just went through that. Then if that person was to come on board, then that's another example where I'd be like, okay, cool. You know, like it's obviously not appropriate to throw you back into a deficit. You're just, you just came out of a prep you've already gained a little bit of weight. How about we just try to hover around this maintenance weight for a while and progressively still try to get your calories up. Remember like maintenance doesn't necessarily mean like maintenance calories. It can just mean a, a maintenance body weight within a few hundred gram range, but you can always manipulate someone's calories and energy expenditure, energy output on that too. Mm -hmm. Hey guys, just a reminder that we post regular informative content on both our Instagram and YouTube channel. So make sure to go over to those platforms and search The Bodybuilding Dietitians. See you there. Great. So this next question says, what is your opinion on veggie pastas? So do they mean veggie pastas as in those pastas that are made from like lentils and chickpeas and beans or you can make pasta noodles from actually a lot of other vegetables too you know people mm. spiral like carrots and zucchini and squash so just vegetable pasta in general yeah i think i think they mean the latter not the former but uh we'll discuss both i guess okay well what's your opinion on mm. them i don't have any issue with them at all i think they're good like they're vegetables that makes you a bit easier to consume vegetables then that's a bonus as well mm -hmm. I think the only kind of, I don't want to use the word issue, but roadblock I see with them is if you're substituting them for other sources of carbohydrates because you potentially view them as better or that you shouldn't be consuming wheat-based pasta or rice-based pasta. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think uh, be open to other pasta options. Yeah. And, and make sure also, that you're consuming enough energy as well. Mm, and on the energy front, like it's important to actually read the label too, because I think sometimes people are under the interpretation that, oh, it's a vegetable pasta. It must be low calorie. But a lot of these pastas that are like super high in protein, like black bean pasta, edamame bean pasta, um, those lentil pastas and stuff. 
They are semi-lower on the carbohydrate front. They still have a decent amount of carbohydrates in them though, but they're pretty high in protein. They, some of them have a decent amount of fat in them too, and they are crazy high in fiber. Mm. So one, they actually turn out to have a similar amount of energy to normal wheat-based pastas or gluten-free pastas and gluten-free pastas made from things like rice and soy and potato starch and all that, all that jazz but they are very high in fiber. So being high in fiber, pretty high in protein, like remarkably nutritious, of course, very satiating. But sometimes if you eat a lot of them, it can cause some people gastro distress because there are some of those pastas out there. Like if let's say you had like a hundred gram serving or something, it's probably over half your daily recommended fiber intake from just that one bowl of pasta. So you could be pushing it. So sometimes people find that they, uh, do fart. <laughs> <laughs> People fart in general without veggie pasta. People fart in general. But no, it, it's, it's good stuff. And I think it's fantastic for more people who are on plant-based diets as well because it is a good source of protein compared to your average wheat-based pasta. Like, it's definitely... Do you prefer veggie or uh, wheat-based pasta? Mm, I probably prefer wheat-based pasta just yeah. because one... It is lower in fiber. And also, I eat pasta for the carbs. Like, I eat my eggs and I eat my yogurt and my kangaroo for protein sources. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess it's, it's all a matter of perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm. I don't think I've ever had, like, spiral butternut pumpkin pasta or mm-hmm. caridol zucchini pasta. Yeah. I've had chickpea pasta, which I almost uh, threw out. And mm. I very, very rarely throw out food. Chickpea pasta is one that is pretty decently high in fat. Mm. It does not taste good. <laughs> it just tastes like you're eating chickpeas, which I know you used to eat by the can, but I did not. I love it. Well, but pasta is really good, if, even just with like salt and pepper, a bit of olive oil, right? And a little mm. bit of rosemary. But obviously get amongst the pasta Cheesy sauces. Pasta. I used to have that all the time. Mm-hmm. Pasta, cheese, microwave. Got a well-balanced meal right there. <laughs> Absolutely. But like, even like if starting to spiral vegetables, that's actually pretty good too. But again, you really have to flavor it. Cause like, if you just give yourself a massive bowl of spiraled zucchini and you do not flavor that up, it's not mm. very enjoyable to twist your fork into. Unless you're in prep. <laughs> even in prep, like I feel like everyone's probably gone through a point in prep where they've abused zucchinis or cucumbers. Like, mm. like we, you never bruise them on purpose. Sometimes <laughs> it happens in the fridge or you drop one. But I mean, like you abuse yourself with them and your guts. But we've all been there and we've probably all learned from that. And it's a big no-no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jack, this next one, it says, do you ever suffer from post-comp blues? Fortunately not. And I think there's a couple reasons why that's the case. And I think reason number one is that I'm just very, very eager for making improvements in my off season after finishing prep. Uh, Because by the time, even from like five, six weeks out, although I'm very much looking forward to stepping on stage, like I'm also very low energy. My training performance probably has been stagnated for quite a long time. Going to the gym is more of a chore than a source of enjoyment at that stage, unfortunately. And I'm just very keen to be experiencing uh, the increased strength in the off season, the abundance of food, the training performance. And that's why I don't suffer from post-comp blues because like the, all the wonderful things about prep, they've 
I've experienced those yeah. and their past. And now it's time to look forward to what's on the other side. It's interesting because I think we've both found the deeper you get into a comp prep, the more you crave your improvement season. Mm. But the deeper you get into your improvement season, the more you crave a comp prep. It kind of comes back to... The grass is always greener. <laughs> yeah, or like you always want what you can't have mm. sort of thing. But gosh, I, I feel like if you take full advantage of your prep, and certainly right now it's like unprecedented times, there's always a little bit of uncertainty with shows, particularly here in Australia these past few years, because in the past people were really guaranteed the opportunity, you could say, to take full advantage of a prep season. You could compete in multiple shows in multiple states with multiple different federations as well. So you would take full advantage of that. You could do anywhere between, let's say, two to maybe six shows in a season. But I think we're both telling you that, gosh, by by the end of those couple of shows and like just really pushing for months on end, being chronically dieted, very low energy, you know, you don't have much body fat on you. Like you just crave it, you know, like I, I genuinely crave having a little bit more body fat on me when I'm in that well, lean. When you state. say you, like, I think you can't speak for everyone because obviously no, I said you, you and you and I. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> because like, obviously not everyone does feel like that because mm. people do get post-comp blues. And I think ultimately just having a very firm goal of what you're going to be doing after prep is really important because mm-hmm. The reason why post, well, my opinion, the reason why it occurs is like you've been dieting towards a single goal for six months. And once that goal has been accomplished and ticked off, like what do you do next? Yeah. And especially for people, I would say, who share a bit more on social media, like their social media blows up. And then as soon as you step off that stage, it's quiet. Mm -hmm. Like no one's rooting for you on stage anymore. No one's giving you maybe positive reinforcements in your comments, uh, in your DMs when you post a nice physique photo or something. And it can be tough. And that's why, yeah, having those additional goals is really important. Yeah, but at the same time, like I feel like people shouldn't necessarily be doing this for the external validation. You should be doing it for Mm. you and you should be doing it because you genuinely love bodybuilding as a lifestyle. And that's why it really comes back to being more process driven rather than outcome driven. Like Mm. the ultimate outcome is stepping on stage in the best condition of your life so far and being competitive and trying to, you know, win first place. That's the ultimate outcome. But the process that gets you there, like that's what you really need to fall in love with. And that's what you really need to embrace and enjoy in all aspects in every phase. So If you have certain goals and certain things you're looking forward to in a comp prep, try to have things that you're equally looking forward to in an improvement season because improvement seasons are wicked, man. You know, Mm. you're full of energy. You wake up, well, (laughs) I keep saying you, but I'm talking to you. (laughs) We, I feel like we wake up each morning just excited to get after it and just like, you know, we're like keen to train, you know, you're well fed, you feel strong. Like you just, you feel really good and just watching your body actually making those improvements and then setting yourself those long-term goals so that, wow, next time I step on stage, I'm going to be even more competitive. Mm. So still working towards something. But of course, I understand that you and I are in a very unique position as well, because sometimes we can live vicariously through our competitors Mm. too. Like as comp prep coach athletes going to the shows each season, you know, coaching people, you're still in that atmosphere, in that environment. But even if you're not a comp prep coach and a lot of people aren't, 
that doesn't mean that you can't engage with the community. You can still go to ICM posing workshops. You can still make friends and get a backstage pass, or you can still go to all the shows, follow all these people on social media. You can still be involved in working toward your goals during the improvement season while other people are prepping and vice versa. Like it's a beautiful community. But yeah, I would just say the way to not suffer from the blues, right, is to have other things to look forward to because like it is a lifestyle. Mm, Definitely. Yeah. And ultimately, if you want to be a good bodybuilder, you're going to spend a lot more of your life in improvement seasons than you are going to in comp preps. Mm, Yeah, that's without a doubt. Again, unless you're very, very gifted. (laughs) Yeah. Or, you know, you get to that point where you're competing professionally and you can do more so like compete every year do like you have shorter improvement seasons you don't necessarily need to take years off maybe you could take like eight months off and then compete again sort of thing but Mm. once you're actually at that advanced level yeah or unless people don't really care as much about getting to that advanced level and they just want to compete for the sake of competing Mm -hmm. without really improving their physique yeah but of course it makes sense because comp prep it definitely is very celebratory there certainly mm. are a lot of things to work forward to but ultimately you just gotta you gotta love every phase cool well that sums up this episode but as always we're going to finish on one thing that we've learned this week well do you want to go first yeah sure so i was listening to the dr carl podcast and there was this episode about dogs and other animals <laughs> And like, obviously this kind of makes sense when they say it, but dogs just like humans can get different like OCD disorders and like maybe ADD and ADHD and Mm -hmm. just obsess about certain things. Uh, Like the analogy gave in the podcast was like this dog was obsessed with shadows and it would always chase shadows. And yeah, it made me think about our dog, Boston, because he's a little bit of a unique little guy. He's not even one year old yet, but he definitely has, because we live on the corner of a street. So like cars can pass on two sides. And if there's, it must be like a certain acoustic sound of the car because it's not all cars it's only certain cars and it's especially trucks <laughs> especially trucks boston is a truck chaser <laughs> yeah like he just we, we feed him so much food but he just stays so lean because like he literally <laughs> spends the whole day like just running up and down that fence chasing trucks but it's amazing because they have such good hearing so Boston and Sam will just be like asleep inside and like you might just look at one of them and then Boston will like perk up his ears and it's still silent for us humans, Mm. but he'll perk up his ears, he'll just like race out the door and then you hear a truck go by and you're like, roof, roof. (laughs) (laughs) So he hears him coming, man. Yeah. Yeah. But (laughs) he's a cool guy. What did you learn? (laughs) Well, I listened to the same podcast too. Um, Dr. Carl on Triple J, such a good podcast. It's just fun to tune into. We need to actually, I've got a few questions I actually want to call up and ask him myself. I'm honestly not sure how accurate his info is though, because for us, we know a lot about nutrition. And when we hear his nutrition answers, like often we're like, eh, it's not really the full picture. Mm. So like, I'm sure if he's answering maybe a, a physics question or a medical question, maybe it's the same deal. Yeah. Like it's sort of, he gets it within the ballpark, but it's not quite a hundred percent. Yeah. There. He has said a pretty few crazy things about like mm. <laughs> drink a certain amount of 
protein shakes a day and you can build a certain amount of kilograms of muscle in that one day as well. (laughs) But anyway, back to this animal podcast. I learned something about dogs too, is that dogs have a phenomenal sense of smell. And we probably all know this as well. Like when you're cooking a steak up or we cook our kangaroo every single night and the dogs just come into the kitchen and they're sniffing around and we're like, sorry guys, (laughs) you've already had your dinner. But they have such a good sense of smell that a dog can smell a fingerprint that has been on a piece of glass for six weeks. Like, I thought it was three weeks. Six. Six wow. weeks. So, one, what the flips does a fingerprint even smell like? Unless you, like, you know, drown your hands in garlic and then you put a fingerprint on a piece of glass. Maybe you could, like, sniff that and you're like, <laughs> But a fingerprint after six weeks on a piece of glass. That's why... I'll, like, obviously, they use dogs in the police force so that they can sniff things out. But oh, really? <laughs> no, it's, it's pretty amazing, though. Yeah. There's nothing more awkward, though, when you are at the airport and, like, one of the security dogs just comes up and starts sniffing your crotch. And you're like, mm. excuse me, personal space, thanks. <laughs> well, I've never had that myself, but... <laughs> you need to up the pheromone gain, yo. <laughs> anyway, guys, thanks for tuning into this podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag the bodybuilding dietitians. If you're feeling friendly, please leave us a rating and potentially write us a review as well on the podcast channel you're listening to. And we'll catch you next week.